know, particularly, well, we always do, but Lord, I need your grace on this one. Lord, we just pray for a special measure of your presence, a special measure of your anointing, Lord God, to have hearts to receive your word. And anything that I missed from your voice this week, Lord, that you just come and fill it right now in Jesus' name. Because I need you. I need you, Lord. I need you, Jesus. We need you. Oh, presence of God, presence of God, presence of God. Amen. All right. So, that's a little loud. I don't know if you want to bring me down or not, but I feel a little loud. So, today's, uh, today's sermon is, is really a continuation, in some part, from last week. Uh, and last week I was teaching uh, a little bit of a, a big picture prophetic kind of message on an age of transition, okay? And what I'm believing here is, right, just like in the natural world history, there are different transitional periods that the world goes through, right? Uh, and at the same time, in the spirit and in the biblical narrative, there are these transitions that take place. Okay. And so last week was largely a, a message, hopefully of encouragement, but also of kind of pushing you into a place of can you recognize that the world is in the midst of an amazing reset and transition, and what are we going to be able to do, or what shall we do to position ourselves to be successful in the spirit and in the things of the Lord while the world is undergoing such change, Okay. And that was really what was going on uh, last week. And uh, in the midst of, well, in the midst of chaotic week, I felt the Lord was just saying, yeah, man, you have signed up for living a life with audacity. And uh, we're going to talk about that. I know it might be a little bit of an SAT word or an SAT word, audacity, audacious, right? Audacity is, according to Merriam-Webster, Showing a willingness to take a surprisingly bold risk. Living an audacious life. Who knows that living a life of calculated and sometimes uncalculated risk is part of being a disciple of Jesus. Okay? So a third of us raise our hands. So the other two thirds, we're going to teach you about that. It is a call, right? And this, this is what's so amazing about being a follower of Jesus. Is that your life actually is supposed to be an adventure. Okay? It really is. Your life is supposed to be an adventure in Him. You never know what is going to really be happening. Because, right, those who are the sons and daughters of God, right, they, they, they are led by the Spirit of God. They're led by the wind of God. And we never know exactly what the Scripture actually says to where they are going and where they are not going. And I'm just going to be honest with you a little bit. I think that us in the Western church, we've gotten a little maybe too planted in our normalcy. Look, normalcy is good. We all need a sense of order at times. But sometimes, if you have a little too much normalcy, what happens here is your feet get planted in cement. And we get used to it, and now we don't want to move, right? Look, we are the descendants spiritually and physically of a nomadic people. A desert people. God called Abraham from the desert. God brought Moses and the children of Israel through a desert, through a wilderness. They have been a people that have been on the go, moving tent dwellers, right? 
This is the call, and I don't mean that you necessarily have to be moving all over, but I mean in the spirit, there is an action, there's an adventure, there is an audacious way to life. And I believe that if we are going to be successful through this age of transition, we need to understand that our life in Christ, our life in Him is one, yes, picking up your cross daily, but if you're picking up your cross daily, what did Jesus do when He picked up the cross? Before He died, He had to walk. He had to carry it. He had to move. He had to go through the streets. He had to be spit upon. Not like he just picked up the cross and was crucified. He's picked up the cross and then he had a walk, right? The Via Della Rosa, I believe it was, the seven stages of the cross, I think the Catholics believe, right? There is a journey. There is a walk, right? And so, you know, to kind of just stir us up a little bit, just so if there's any doubt, and I never do this, so it's a little awkward, just because there's so many scriptures, I'm just going to plow through them and encourage you with, listen, to the men and women of faith and the type of audacious, risk, bold kind of life that they were living. Last time I checked, Joseph, Joshua, Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, the disciples were not just sitting on a couch watching TV. That wasn't what they were doing. Listen, listen to this, man. Just let this permeate your being. Right? Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their ancestors to give them. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Not suggested to you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. 1 Chronicles, David said unto Solomon's son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God. My God is with you. He will not fail you, nor will he forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Psalm 31, be strong and take heart, all you who, are, who have hope in the Lord. Isaiah 41, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 2 Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind, or in this version, self-discipline. Come on. Like, the heritage of our faith is one to be courageous, to not be fearful, to be bold. And so philosophically and educationally, we can work backwards. The only reason why God would be having to say this to his followers is because they were doing what? They were doing some scary things. Dare I say, they were doing some audacious things, some risk things, some bold things, right? If you do not live a life of risk and boldness and adventure in him, there's no need to have to draw on the words of God that says be courageous and be bold. So when risky times come and when bold times come during the age of transition, 
if you have never planted your feet on a journey, a place of being bold, having to be bold, you're not going to know how to do it. But it's the call. So, let's get a little background to these pictures. This picture was taken in 1991. It's not Photoshop because, we, guys, for those of you that are under 30, there was no Photoshop then. Okay? Uh, this is a mother and a father that, yes, is throwing their child. There's the rest of it. Okay? I, this is like unbelievable. And guess what? When this picture made it into the magazines in 1995 in REI, Recreational Equipment Incorporated's catalog, no one raised a fuss like this was like inappropriate or child abuse. Everyone's like, oh, that's pretty sweet, pretty cool. The kid is bundled in swaddling clothes, right? And is being tossed over, you know, two boulders. The parents are mountain climbers, and they're like, yeah, our kid is not keeping us back from our life. We're going to continue to do our life, and our kid is going to join us in mountain climbing or bouldering here and hiking. This is crazy, right? But it's interesting. I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I read the article about it. The, the, the girl is now an adult. And guess what? She likes mountain climbing. And she likes outdoor stuff. And she's got a good career. And she's got some, you know, for lack of a better word, chutzpah, some internal fortitude, right? Right? Now, look, I mean, yeah, this is a funny picture, a bizarre picture, but it's an illustration. Here are some parents that are like, we're going to live and we're going to teach our children to live an audacious, riskful, calculated risk life. Here's the thing. Like I said, I had a rough week, so this sermon may not be as too polished, but it is what it is, right? I got to speak to the Church of America, right? And I got to largely speak to a middle-class church. What we have here is we have learned some cultural things. Um, and it's not going to allow us to really navigate through a real age of transition. And so in American culture, what we have to understand here, and it's not wrong, I want you to get this right, affluence and abundance is not wrong. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's a blessing from the Lord to, to have an abundant life monetarily. It's not a bad thing at all. But what I see in spiritual sight, if you will, is that when we live in a culture of such massive abundance, it can, if we're not careful, produce something. And what it can do here is it can produce a spirit of maintenance, a spirit of maintaining, and a spirit of, of, of not taking risks anymore. Right? In fact, I mean, we have entire industries that are designed to mitigate risk, which I'm not against. I mean, after the storm, I mean, I'm, I called up the, 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 the housing, uh, what was it called? The homeowner's insurance. And be like, yo, we got some damage, right? That's insurance. It's to protect from risk. Not necessarily things wrong with that. But what I'm saying here is this. If we live a lifestyle where we are so risk avoidant, 
and we're so concerned about maintaining what we have, it very well can leak into more of the spiritual principles and spiritual aspects of how we live our life, where we no longer take that step of faith and no longer need to be courageous because we've done such a good job of not having to be courageous because we've mitigated so much of the risk. Does that make sense? I remember I showed this to uh, my kids in, in high school. I, I, there was a season I was a little bit of a TED Talk junkie. I don't know if you guys know uh, TED Talks. But there was this guy, this multi-ridiculous billionaire uh, by the name of Nick Hanauer. And he was given this, this kind of discussion. And he's like, look, he's like, as a kid, I was not the smartest kid in the room. He's like, many of you sitting there are a lot smarter than I am. You just don't have as much money as I do. He's like, I wasn't that good in school. There's nothing really that great about me. My IQ is not that high. He's like, but I was born with this unusual ability to take risk. And it was interesting. And he was talking about how essentially to acquire wealth, like he does, we're talking like massive wealth, he took massive risk. Like he invested, I don't know how many million dollars in some like small little company that was getting off the ground called PayPal. Then he sold PayPal, his shares of it, and then he rolled that over into some other weird company that he thought had a lot of promise that <sighs> something to do with like a Brazilian river called Amazon, right? But he's like, this is it, right? It, by, by having an unusual amount of ability to absorb risk and, and take it, he was able to make a lot of money. But I think it's a principle. It's a principle whereby to see the fullness of the Lord, to see the kingdom of God come into our communities and into our families, you're going to have to live this life of audacity where you're willing to step out and take a level of risk. And in this age of transition that is happening, which I taught on last week, it's going to be one of the main things that are going to allow you to be successful in the kingdom Bring the kingdom of the Lord to our families, our communities, or not. Okay? All right. Now, what's very interesting here, getting back to this kind of cultural training of ours, America and Americans used to be amazingly crazy risk takers. But our affluence, I think, has gotten us a little, for lack of a better phrase, soft. Okay? We were amazing risk takers. All right? If I look around the room... The vast majority of us today probably got here underneath this common recipe. Your family lives somewhere in the old world. Mostly Europe. We're looking at this room. Some from Africa, some from Asia. And what happened is they said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to take my entire family. I'm going to move across the world. Or maybe they were pushed out because of Genocide because of revolution. Yeah. But by and large, it's like, you know what? Life here isn't so great. I'm going to take an amazing risk. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to set sail to the other side of the world. Yes, I do not speak the language there. Yes, I don't know anyone there. Yes, I do not know where I am going to live. And yes, I don't speak a language of that nation. And I do not have a job. I'm going to take a risk. They take the risk, they come over and find things may not really pan out here in the east, and they're like, you know what, what the heck? Let's pack my, my whole family 
on a horse, on a wagon, and you know what, we're just going to go west. And we don't have a house, and there's native indigenous peoples there. We don't know if they're friendly or hostile, but you know what, we're just going to do it. It's a tremendous amount of risk. Tremendous amount of risk. In fact, um, there, there, there are some theories out there that maybe, quite possibly, one of the reasons for the increased percentages of ADD, ADHD, uh, increased percentages of obsessive-compulsive tendencies, uh, increased anxieties and what not have you in the United States is essentially you have all these people who are seemingly predisposed to take these risks. And they all come to America. And they all breed, for lack of a better word, and they produce these kids that have more of this kind of DNA in them. But look, man, if you don't have an outlet for that, if you don't have an outlet for that adventure, how will it manifest? How will it manifest? Especially if you don't have an outlet for it in the spirit. So America, largely in the past, has been a place to take risks. And it was a place that gave the allowance to take risks. If you don't like the East, you go West. Okay. Now, let's try to bring it into the Bible, right? Okay. Living a life with audacity. It is a call. And as it's been said, those people in history that always are playing safe, they rarely make history. Those people who took risks. Let's open up to the, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Okay? Nehemiah chapter 2. Taking risks. All right, the background here. <clears throat> the Jews of, of Israel obviously have been taken into captivity. What does that mean? They've been taken virtually as slaves. Their temple has been destroyed. Their homeland has been destroyed. They're now living in Babylon for several years. And Nehemiah gets it in his head. You know what? Now is the time to go back to our homeland and to build up our nation again. I think it's time. Let's read the story. We're going to read a little bit here. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 11. So I, Nehemiah, came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. And viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, 
that we may no longer be a reproach, right? We would no longer be a laughingstock, a people with no hope. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed. They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage and you have no right or memorial in Jerusalem. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Let's take a look at this. What is, I believe, what Nehemiah is doing here? What can he say to us about the notion of living a very audacious life? Come on. You are a slave in Babylon. You have been in captivity. Your nation has been destroyed. You get the allowance to be able to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and see what's going on. You go back to Babylon and you report to all of your brethren what's going on. And now you have this crazy idea that you're going to bring an entire nation back. You're a slave, essentially. Okay? What's the formula that we can learn from? It's this. What's the first thing he does? You see earlier in the chapter, he, Nehemiah, gets permission. He gets permission from the king of Babylon. He gets permission from Atraherxes. So, to live an audacious life, to live a risky life, to live a life of adventure in the kingdom and in faith, the first thing you need to do is get permission. Permission from the authority. Jesus is the king. Jesus has not just given you permission. He's saying, go and do it. Read what he says. Go into all the earth, make disciples, get fish, a fisherman of men, right? Lay your hands on the sick and see them healed. Cast out devils, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, proclaim the good news in the hour of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Oh, by the way, when you do it, you're going to be persecuted. People are not going to like you. You're going to have a rough time. But go and do it. I want you to see that you bring the kingdom of God to planet Earth. Here is the thing, guys. If you're not living a risky life, it's not that you need permission. It's that you have not heard the voice of the Lord. To be a disciple is to live a, an audacious life in this side of the world. Now, if you need my permission with the little authority I have, do it. You got to get permission. I'm not the king, but you're, you're my heart, right? The permission from the king of kings and lord of lords. He did not save you to binge watch Netflix. Now, every once in a while, it's kind of nice to binge watch Netflix with my kids. We're watching Little House on the Prairie right now. It's pretty fun. But we're sick and we're cooped up, right? But come on, I'm telling you, man. The Lord saved you and breathed his life inside of you, and he's giving you not a permission, but a mandate to represent his work on planet Earth. You got the permission. So did Nehemiah. The second thing. Nehemiah, which I think this is where some of us gets, we get lost. 
Nehemiah is compelled because he sees a call. He sees a purpose and a need. Babylon was pretty sweet in many regards. If you're complying and if you're doing your thing with the Babylonians, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a bit wealthier than the, the Judean hills, right? It's a place of affluence. It's a place of wealth. I mean, if, if you kind of behave like, like, a, like, 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 like a Daniel, I mean, Daniel behaved, but he didn't behave, right? There, there is opportunity there, right? Yeah, it is like a New York, right? If you, don't, if you don't ruffle the feathers, like the Babylonians, yeah, they bring you into slavery, but they kind of allow you to, like, begin to do your own thing because that's kind of part of their mentality, okay? But Nehemiah, he sees a call and a purpose. Let's, let's see this in um, chapter 2, verse 13. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And then in 17 he says, it's been burned down and I no longer want to be a people and I no longer want God to be in reproach. To be embarrassed by us. By not having a homeland and not building the temple of God. You see, this is the second thing. First thing is he gets permission from the king. The second thing is he sees a purpose. The walls of Jerusalem are burned down. The temple of my God is destroyed. And it is an embarrassment. It is a reproach before God and before man. We, the Jewish people, have been called to be a light unto the world to represent the one true God, and this is our state? It's a reproach. It's an embarrassment to our God. I have a purpose and a call to build up his walls, to build up his temple, to build up his house. You, 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 I don't have to like spoon feed you the spiritual principles, right? Come on, right? We have a purpose to build up his kingdom, to build up his temple, to build up his presence on earth. And it's a reproach. It's an embarrassment, right? Like, I want some of you to get this. If you don't like the way that the country is going, and you don't like what's going on in your community and your family, dude, it's time to be like, it's a reproach before my God. Percentage-wise, I, maybe Jose can correct me if I'm wrong. Percentage-wise, I'm not sure if there's maybe, maybe South Korea. I don't know if there's any other nation outside of South Korea where there is such a high percentage of believers in the nation. That's like, I mean, we, we are a formidable voting block in politics, we're crying out loud, right? And with that substance, man, it, it is a part of a reproach before the Lord, okay? He gets permission. He sees a call and a purpose. Third thing, Nehemiah knows. He knows. He knows the word of the Lord. See, from the prophets, I mean, this is a boy and a young man who, who knows the word of the Lord. He knows the word of the Lord. Like, the word of the prophets is that Israel will return out of captivity. Like, there has been a prophetic announcement. You shall return to the land of your forefathers, and when you return, that will be 
the foundation and the atmosphere for the coming of the Messiah. You need to know. You need to know the word of the Lord. Look, he says this, he makes this very clear in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of God which had been put upon me. Like it's more than Nehemiah knows the word, it's the word of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord has been put upon Nehemiah for a generation to fulfill the goal of the Lord. But he knows the word. Look, the reality of what Nehemiah is doing is absolutely living in life with audacity. It is an audacity to be in captivity, to petition the king. Yeah, you should let me go to Israel, and I should be able to go back to the land of my forefathers, see what's going on. And I come back, and by the way, and I'm not going to convince you that you should let go all the captives of Israel so they can return to Zion. That's without a Moses turning a rod into a serpent. That's without plagues, people. This is just a convincing. Yeah, king, you should let us go. Yeah, Nehemiah, I think you're right. Why don't you guys go? He knows the prophetic word of the Lord. It's not Nehemiah. It's God and his word. And God and his word is saying live an audacious life. But here's the thing, and I think this has a telling into the picture. The parents are mountain climbers. They toss the young girl across. Today, the girl is a mountain climber. There is something, man, about generational transference, isn't there? There is something about standing on righteousness. There's something on standing on we're living an audacious, crazy life for King Jesus, and we're passing on to the next generation. I'm telling you, you know, with all due respect, look, if you... Focus too much on maintenance. You focus too much on the American dream. If you focus too much on avoidance of risk of the gospel, if you live a lifestyle like that, what will your kids do? The kids will much more easily be absorbed into the cultural norms of our society. Before Nehemiah, before the baby getting tossed across the rock, there's a Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in the land of captivity. He's in Babylon for a season. He is speaking forth prophetic messages. Okay? Nehemiah, as a kid, would have not heard Jeremiah directly, but he would have read of the script, if you will. I mean, it's, Jeremiah is complicated, right? He's in Israel, he goes down to Egypt, there's all this kind of crazy stuff. But essentially what, what, um, what happens here is the prophetic life of Jeremiah is right before essentially Nehemiah is born. So he's hearing. He's hearing this message. He's hearing the, the priests. He's hearing the parents, the older generation, speaking forth the prophetic message of Jeremiah. Okay? And I think this is part of the linchpin to it. Jeremiah 12, 5. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? It's a prophetic message from Jeremiah. Let me break it down a little bit. Okay? 
There's a wonderful book that was written called Run With Horses. That's a wonderful book that helps explain this a little bit. This is what's going on here. The prophetic message of Jeremiah is, look, you have been destined as children of God to symbolically run with horses. How are you going to do that if you're weary running with men? Like, you're tired and you're fatigued running with men? You're not called to run with men. You're children of God. You're called to run with horses. Look, you live in a land of peace, America. You live in a land of peace where you trusted, right? You live in Babylon where you are trusting in a place of virtual peace and you're weary. You're weary in a land of abundance? Really? Then how on earth are you going to handle the floodplain of the Jordan? What's the floodplain of the Jordan? The floodplain of the Jordan is the western side of the Jordan River. It's the place, right, where the spies went in and they saw the giants. If you're weary now, how on earth are you ever going to run with horses? If you're weary now, how are you ever going to step into the place of the promised land? And I'm saying this to the church today. In an age of transition, if you are weary... You're weary now. How will you be able to run with horses? God has called you. God has called Israel. He spoke it forth through Jeremiah. <coughs> excuse me, through Jeremiah to Nehemiah. And he spoke it through like tons of prophetic revelation in his word. You have been called for greatness. And that greatness is not being necessarily Jeff Bezos. Something far greater than Jeff Bezos. And Elon Musk and Bill Gates and having all this. He has called you to walk on earth with the authority of sons and daughters. How can you do that? If you're weary with the average life. The average normal life is putting its complexities and burdens on you. Be courageous. Fear not. I've called you to run with horses. I've called you to take the land of the Jordan. <clears throat> now, there's a whole bunch of people, including Esther and Mordecai, who are hanging out in Persia and Babylon. It's kind of a weird map kind of thing. And they don't return. It's, it's too weary. But God calls Nehemiah to return to bring back the captives of Israel. Things to remember <clears throat> in the spirit here. <clears throat> Dana, we'll probably get you ready in a little bit. Things to remember here. I, I really want to, during this age of so much transition on planet Earth, and I know some of you guys are, are living a life of transitions right now, right? Not living, and I, I, dude, I'm telling you, you probably heard this when you're like, you're in youth group, right? Not living an audacious life, a life of boldness, a life of risk, a life of adventure in faith produces a stagnant life. Okay? In the spirit, and I think also in the physical. They, go, they really do go hand in hand. 
If you feel stuck in the mud, if you feel that you're living a life that is stagnant, it's because you have chosen not to live a life of perpetual stepping out. And now you're stuck in the mud. It's because you've adopted a narrative. Life is weary. Life is hard. I need to mitigate all risks. But a king of kings and lord of lords is saying, oh, wait a minute, people. This is like this plane. I'm trying to bring everyone to this plane. You get the authority from the king. You need to hear the call. The prophetic message of the Lord. He's not called you to be a cog on the wheel. So not living an audacious life in faith produces a stagnant life. And just a representation of this. I remember I got downloaded this when I was living in Israel and it blew my mind away. Some of you have heard this before. <clears throat> you really have two main bodies of water in Israel. Up in the north is a place called the Sea of Galilee. And in the south is the Dead Sea. Okay? And what happens here is the Sea of Galilee is fed from the tributaries of the Jordan River, many of it coming out of the mountain ranges on the border of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. Right? And the waters and the dew and the springs all feed the headwaters of the Jordan. The Jordan River goes into the Sea of Galilee, empties out. On the southern portion of the Sea of Galilee, this is very important, the water exits. Water comes into the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, hangs out there, lots of life, lots of fish, and then it exits the southern portion. It exits the southern portion of the Sea of Galilee, and it goes down the entire spine of the nation of Israel. And then, boop, it finishes its course in the Dead Sea. It's dead. I don't get it. How is the Dead Sea done? There's all this beautiful, fresh, vibrant water that comes into the Dead Sea from the Jordan River, from the Sea of Galilee, from the mountains. The sea of Galilee isn't dead. The Dead Sea is dead. It's the same water. So how can one water be dead and the other water be full of life? It's very simple without getting into like geology and stuff. What does the Sea of Galilee do? It freely receives and freely gives. The Dead Sea, what does it do? All it does is hoard. All it does is maintain. I can't let go of any of the water. If I let go of the water, I may dry up. But by holding on, by mitigating the risk, by having the insurance plan, by being fearful, not taking the adventure of letting go, it dies. Nothing can live there. Nothing. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of people physically and a lot of people spiritually that live a life like that. Mitigating the risk, mitigating the risk, safe, safe, maintenance, 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 maintenance. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's death. Because sons and daughters of God are supposed to freely give and freely give away. Always on the move, in the spirit, stepping into the things the Lord's called them to. Now, Nehemiah, going back to him, he remembers and knows the words of the Lord. He knows the words of Jeremiah that you've been destined for great things. To have a nation, to bring forth the Messiah, to be a light unto the world. And he's like, I hear the word of the Lord, I'm going for it. And the second thing that built into this is Proverbs 29, 18. 
the word of the Lord. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Many of you have heard me say this before, but the Hebrew word there for vision is chazon. Chazon is not a business plan. Chazon in Hebrew is an actual divine prophetic revelation from the throne room of God. If you do not get a word of the Lord inside of your being, man, from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords from the throne room, you will perish. You will perish. What can we do to block those words? I'm telling you, it's living this safe life, this life of maintenance. This life of culture tells me I need to live a very routine life. So, <clears throat> you were designed and born to run with horses. We have a call to rebuild the symbolic and spiritual fallen walls of the temple of God. And this raises some complexities. And the complexities is why not? Why is it that, by and large, we don't necessarily do this? And if Dana, if you can hear me, if you can come on down, please. I don't know. She's got to be out there. There you go. Look, we can talk all about the spiritual stuff. We can also talk about the, the physical, everyday stuff. There's plenty of people that, in the physical, they're just not taking the risk. Playing it too safe. And both physically, could be a job, could be a relationship, could be where you're living, it could be a whole mess of things. It could be your health, your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health. Why is it that we don't see these changes? Why is it that we don't step out? And there's lots of reasons, but I just have a couple here. And that relates to Nehemiah. I think one is that we like comfort. You like comfort. Yeah, I mean, I can't, can't blame you. But comfort will kill you. One of these guys I like to follow on podcasts and on Twitter, he says, you know, people are so concerned that people that are working out and stuff are so concerned about getting calluses on their hands. I'm more concerned about calluses on my mind. Like building up a toughness of spirit, right? An internal fortitude. Look, there are people who just simply like things the way they are. Because it's easy. It's not hard. Fine. You won't run with horses. When the kingdom of God picks up speed, you're going to be like, where did everyone go? Bro, we're, we're running with the Mustangs. The world has changed. You've been seeking comfort your whole life. We've been built to run with horses. That's not comfortable. 
we've been built to take ground in the spirit. And I'm telling you that there's an age of transition on planet Earth where you have to say no to comfort. You have to say no to comfort. And I strongly encourage you. I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you, which most of us won't receive. And you won't receive it because we spiritualize and hyper-spiritualize everything. If you want to get some discomfort in the spirit, I'm telling you right now, through my experience, get some discomfort in the physical first. Go fast. You want to get some discomfort in the spirit? Go get some discomfort in the flesh. Go fast. Not like that, I'm not going to have sweet. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about no food, right? A real fast. And fine, I would, I would also encourage you with that. Do things. Do things that produce discomfort. Go out for a longer walk. Go out for a jog. Pick up a new hobby, a new thing that you've never done before. Uh, go, go wake up earlier. Do things to your flesh that's like, I am not going to be surrendered to the flesh and surrendered to comfort. It's one of the powers of fasting. Okay? Do it. I'm telling you, the time is short. It's time to run with horses. So peel back the flesh. Many of us won't do that because, you know, we become all hyper-spiritual. Ah, I'll just pray when I'm in the car. Yeah, okay. Go pray while you're in the car. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's not a bad thing. But, bro, that's like, that's still running with people. That's still living in a land of peace. We got it. We're umping the ante here. Okay? So I highly encourage you that. I mean, Take this, take this symbolically, take this spiritual. I was reading in a, a trail running magazine back in the day. I had a picture of a couch. Take this, take this spiritually. And I have it, I used to have it hanging up in my classroom. And I somehow got lost. I can't show you the, the advertising because it would probably offend too many people. But, so I made my own, right? It's, a, it's just a picture of a couch. And on it, it's a running magazine. It says, yes, hills hurt, but couches kill. Yeah, man, living a lot, an audacious life can hurt. But living a safe life is going to kill you. It's going to kill your spirit, man. It's going to take the breath of God and just kind of sequester it. Just bleh. It's going to do it. Slowly, just like a couch. Slowly taking your soul. Yeah. We like the comfort. Now, here's what's very interesting. Nehemiah's name, who's doing something very uncomfortable, doing a very audacious thing. His name in Hebrew is Nehemiah. Nehemiah actually means in Hebrew, the comfort of Yahweh. Listen to this. The guy that is doing the uncomfortable thing, his name is the comfort of Yahweh. Because when you do the uncomfortable thing, when you run with horses, what do you receive? The comfort of the Lord. When you take new land, you cross the River Jordan, when you go out with the hands and feet of Jesus through the most uncomfortable times, a wonderful thing happens. A Nehemiah comes, a comfort of the Lord. That's how you get the real comfort that allows you 
to be still and at peace on a boat in the Sea of Galilee that is being tossed to and fro. Why don't we do it? We like the comfort. The wrong comfort, the comfort of the world. <clears throat> a second reason why we don't choose to step out is because of the unfortunate naysayers. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9. For they all, don't they always? For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen our hands. Listen to that last one. They say, the naysayers say, we can't rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The naysayers say, you can't live this audacious life in the kingdom. Oh, Lord, when they say that, please strengthen our hands. There will always be naysayers. And the number one most powerful naysayer is the voice inside of your hand. The voice inside of you that says you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. Live the comfortable life. It's the responsible life. I'm telling you this right now. I've seen it in my own life. People will be naysayers. People will critique you. People will say that you can't do it, that you're crazy, you shouldn't be doing it. And they'll do that because they are afraid. People critique you because they are afraid that you will be successful and that their own mediocre life will be exposed. That's why they critique you. You'll never be good enough. Don't go to school and go to college. Don't start a new job. Don't do this. No, no, no. It's too much risk. Don't preach the gospel. They're going to laugh at you. Don't pray for someone for healing. It's not going to happen. Naysayer, naysayer, naysayer. Why? Because if you rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in your life, if you rebuild these things, what are you exposing? You're exposing that there is a truth. The truth is sons and daughters are meant to run with horses. And that the mediocre life is not the life of a disciple. And every other brother and sister, everyone else that's a bride of Messiah is exposed. You can't do the audacious thing because it shows that we're doing the comfortable thing. That's why we're going to rebuild the walls. And even with the naysayers, do what they say. In one hand I have a shovel and in the other hand I have a sword. Or rather a hammer and a sword, right? You can't listen to the naysayer. You can't listen to the naysayer in your life. You need to choose this day. You need to choose a not comfortable experience. It is the only thing that's going to get you through and survive with your spirit intact through an age of transition when the entire world is changing. Desiring comfort, listening to the naysayers, and the third thing. Why people don't do this? It's because you have not a cause. You don't care. The walls of Jerusalem are burned. You really don't care that the presence of God is not truly filling the whole earth. You have no cause. 
Did not David say this? Did he not say, is there not a cause in Israel? Do you remember David? The little boy. Why is it that all the grown men are not fighting? What's going on? He shows up on the battlefield, this young buck, and he's like, why is no one fighting? Is there not a cause? Well, there's a cause. But you got to be so audacious to not just believe in it, but be so audacious that you know that you have a part to play in it. Come on, brothers. Come on, sisters. God, in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite power, could he just come down to earth right now and cause everything to be the way that he wants it? Of course he can. That then means that he does not want it to go down that way. What does he want? What does he want? What Paul says, the whole earth has been waiting in earnest expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be made manifest. If he just comes down now, you don't get to be made manifest. He's holding back the righteous and terrible day of the Lord so that you and I can be made manifest. He's holding back his return for his bride so we can see the bride finally step into an audacious life in him. He's holding back the floodgates of it all. Here's the beautiful thing. There's a man, Nehemiah, who has the comfort of the Lord, who listens to the previous generation. He listens to the Jeremiah. He is, and, and he listens to Proverbs. And he knows that he used to live an audacious life. And he goes out and he does it. Let me see. He does it. He brings them back. He builds up the walls. Man, at the end of chapter 6 of Nehemiah, the walls are built. At the end of chapter 7, the captives return to Jerusalem. Why do they return? Because someone was so audacious. He says, I'm going to build a place for you. Chapter 8. Ezra comes, reads the book of the law of Moses in the land of Israel. Once the walls are built, Ezra reads the word of the Lord. Chapter 9, the people of Israel all confess their sins. There's repentance. Chapter 10, a covenant between Israel and God is sealed. And now, Now, the prophetic utterance has been completed. That finally, the setting is right for the Messiah to come. He doesn't come when they're in captivity. He comes when they return to Israel. And he still will. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. <laughs> Father, we come to you. And I ask. 
for me and my household. And for this congregation that we would be reprogrammed to believe again, to live a life, a life of audacity. An audacity to hope, audacity to believe, an audacity to act. Father, I pray, I pray that yes, nachmu, nachmu ami, that you would comfort ye, comfort ye your people. But Lord, that you would also awaken, awaken us, awaken us to run with horses. Awaken us to choose a less earthly, comfortable life that produces a comfort of Yahweh. For Lord, this is not just for us, but this is so that we can rebuild the walls in the spirit so that the people of earth have somewhere to go. They have a kingdom to step into. In Jesus' name. Have the, uh, the altar team come on down for this week. We are we're gonna have a time of fellowship and cafe next door if you if you'd like. So I invite you to come on down if there's any prayer needs, specifically dealing with the message today. Have a wonderful week. We'll be here this Wednesday. And please, if you'd like, come join us next door, the cafe. Please, especially if, if, if people will be here either receiving prayer or just staying in worship. I, I mean, I say this every week. Please, just let's keep our conversations to the lobby or to the cafe. I just want to reside and stay and remain in this place as people are being ministered to. Have a wonderful week. Before everyone goes, I just wanted to release as well during worship. I felt like the Lord shared that there was someone here that's been struggling with headaches or migraines, and I also felt like the Lord wanted to heal someone who has pain in their left ear as well. God bless you guys. If that's for you, please come down, receive prayer.